The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right. Did you all get a handout? Actually, uh, I don't know how far we got last time on this purity and unity of the church. Um, I've got another handout on church government, so we'll get to that one. Um, there's some in the back. Did you all get them? Yes. Top of page four. Thank you, Jack Evans. I appreciate you more than you can more than you can know. I right, tell you what. Let's begin at the bottom of page two, quickly by way of review, to talk about elements of a more pure church. And these are just listings of things that you want to look for in a, in, a, in a healthy church. Um, we've already talked about some of this Bible doctrine of the right preaching of the Word. It starts there. I mean, you really, you know, you just need to go and listen to how the Word is handled from the pulpit on Sunday morning. It's going to take you. It's going to teach you a ton uh, right away. Um, that's going to set the uh, the tone. It's not everything, but that's obvious, obviously vital. We talked about the proper use of the sacraments or ordinances. Uh, that's uh, vital as well. You had a whole time with Ryan Hutchinson on uh, church discipline. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, we discussed that. Genuine worship um, is important. Effective prayer and effective witness. Turn the page, page 4. Um, and uh, fellowship. So I guess that's about where we were is talking about fellowship. You look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, I'll tell you, wouldn't it be delightful to be part of a church like this? Uh, this has stood for all of time for 2,000 years as one of the greatest uh, short and brief descriptions of a healthy fellowship that you're ever going to find. Acts 2, 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Uh, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now listen, there's a lot of elements of a healthy church life in there. But one of the things is this idea of they devoted themselves to the fellowship. This is that Greek word koinonia. It has to do with sharing what's in common. In Greek uh, society at the time, you know, from Alexander the Great on, there, were, there was common land and there were common possessions that would be used. And then, of course, there was private ownership as well. Uh, but that's what the word means. It's that which is shared in common by all. All right. So that's an important word. And you see some elements of it here. Uh, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. What that meant was that it was important to think of themselves as part of the group. Um, also, you see in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, we should not understand this like it was somehow communism or something, Christian communism. There was no private ownership. That is false. Uh, There was still private ownership. There will always be private ownership. Private ownership was established at the very beginning by God. It was established in the Ten Commandments. If everybody owns everything, then there's no stealing, right? It's impossible to steal if everybody owns everything, all right? But obviously, everybody can't own everything. It's just physically impossible. That's my thing or it's your thing, you know? 
Uh, kids know that very well, don't they? Yeah. It's my truck or your truck. I mean, it's my cookie or your cookie. We can't both have it. You can split it, I suppose, just like Solomon tried to do with that baby. Uh, but, uh, you know, quite frankly, it's either her baby or it's the other woman's baby. All right? Some things really can't be in common. We understand that. And I think the evidence is clear in Acts chapter 5 with uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira that they had a piece of property and they sold it and they got all this money and they kept back part of the money for themselves but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed. And the big problem came when they claimed that that was the full amount, the full uh, sale price. Well, that's basically what they said. The issue wasn't that they held back some of the money. Although that was somewhat of the issue because that wasn't the spirit of the day at that point. I mean, the desire was to give it all, really, give it completely. So already when they're holding back part, you can see that there's some issue going on there. This was nothing, it wasn't like they're holding it back so that they would have the ability uh, to meet their own needs or, or they had some pressing need. But, but Peter doesn't zero in on that. He zeroes in on the lying. And, uh, you know, they uh, dropped dead. That was a good example of church discipline done directly by God. Um, and so that was uh, purity of the church. But the principle of private ownership is still upheld. Uh, you know, Peter says very plainly, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Okay, clearly both the property and the money was theirs. But the attitude here is so different than the one we see uh, in people's hearts today. They weren't thinking, what's in it for me? They weren't selfish. They weren't focused on their own needs. They were like, what do I have that I can give you if you have a need? That was the attitude. This is like the sense of a revival, you know, when the spirit is just moving and people just don't care anymore what their earthly physical situation is. They just want to serve the Lord. And they find delight in alleviating needs from others. They see a need of a brother or sister. They, it just would make them happy to be able to lighten that burden. Now, that's something that's worthy of emulation throughout all the history of the church. They devoted themselves to that, to the fellowship. Verse 44 says that they, all the believers are together and had everything in common. Now, what do you think that means all the believers were together? What does that mean? Uh, that they, they met together. Okay. Or like we congregate right. together. So they spent time together. Yeah. How often? It seems like a lot here. Yeah, a lot is right. I mean, what does the text say? Every day. Every day. They met together every day. Now, you might think, well, that's just impossible. You know, we uh, live in a busy time and age and all. I tell you what, I think that the busyness of our lives in many cases is from Satan. You know, you have to be very, very careful what you get involved in. We're, we, lead, we lead almost frantic lives, Americans do. You have to go overseas to see just how frantic it is. You know, you come over here, everything is jam-packed. Every minute is accounted for, et cetera. When I was in Kenya, for example, you know, the, the meeting started when it started. You know what I'm saying? And the reason was that the people en route, they're not going to just walk by a neighbor or a relative or a friend. They're going to stand by the road and they're going to talk. And how's your wife? How's your, how's your kids? How's your parents? Whatever. They're, and they care and they're going to take the time to, uh, to listen and to talk. And so there's, there's a, a concern for relationship and all that. We're too hurried. Do you sense that? And so it's, you know, the idea of church every day you know, actually, Baptist churches do that once a year. It's called a revival. You know, you have it at least for three days or three nights, something like that. Uh, but, you know, the people's hearts is a sense of a, of a burden there. These folks, there was no sense of burden. They wanted to be together. They enjoyed being together. It was delightful to them. And so there was effective fellowship. Eight, there's a, a biblical church government, uh, elders and deacons. Uh, that's part of a healthy church. And we're going to get to that um, probably later on this evening as we get to another chapter in Wayne Grudem's book. 
So just, you know, the right way that the church is led, elders and deacons, etc. Number nine, spiritual power and ministry. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There's a power, a spiritual power in a healthy church, in a pure church. And it's not there in the church that's not healthy, in the church that's not pure. There's a sense of, of power in the ministry. People's lives are being changed. Marriages are being enriched. People are being brought to faith in Christ. They're getting baptized. They're being discipled. You know, I, there's just the power of God at work in that church. You know, I'm the vine and you're the branches and there's just fruitfulness. There's just uh, a sense of the power and the presence of God. And uh, that's what's going on in a healthy church. So spiritual power and ministry. First uh, Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. You know, and that's not a matter of eloquence or choosing the right word. It's a matter of, is your life changing? You know, that's something that we've, we've talked about, you know, uh, the leadership of, of the church, ministerial staff and the deacons. And, you know, we want to see people's lives changed from non-Christian to Christian and from immature Christian to mature Christian. We want to see that, just that movement happening in people's lives because that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's not just talk. It's about power and the power for, for change. That's what God's doing in our lives. So personal holiness uh, of life among members. It says in uh, Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now this, I believe, is clearly that way of life holiness that we're talking about, not that holiness that is ours just by being Christians, by being united with Christ and having his righteousness imputed to us. I think this is talking about a daily practical life holiness. How can you tell if you just look at the verse Hebrews 12, 14, how can you tell that we're not talking about that positional holiness that's ours in Christ, but just a practical way of life holiness? Make every effort. effort. That's right. How much effort is involved in having imputed righteousness given to your account uh, in Christ? What effort is involved in that? How much? Zero. Thank you. Okay, that's just... That is biblical Christianity. You are to make no effort in that regard. It's simply by faith you receive a gift of righteousness and it's given to you. You're, you're seen and accounted or reckoned to be as righteous and perfect as Christ is. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about what we call sanctification righteousness, that which is worked out with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, those things that are, are worked in your life by the Spirit of God. It says in Romans chapter 8, uh, it says, if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, the Spirit of God comes in your life and He leads you powerfully to battle. He leads you to war. Put on the spiritual armor. Go fight sin every day. If that principle isn't going on in your life, you're not a Christian because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's the sense. You almost have the sense of they and only they are the children of God. So if you want to be a son or daughter of God, you've got to look back at verse 13 of chapter 8 in Romans, Romans 8, 13. Am I putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit? Jonathan Edwards said this is the greatest evidence of being a Christian, personal life holiness. You're fighting the good fight of faith every day. You're fighting the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's what's going on, and not just in you. We're talking about a pure church. It's going on generally in the membership. It's going on in the leaders, leaders of, you know, the spiritual leaders. They are personally holy. Now, again, we're not talking about perfection, you know, perf- like, like never there's any sin and all that. I don't believe in perfection in this world. I think Romans 7 precludes that because we still have sin living in us. And that's wretched, isn't it? And we look forward to the day when that'll be gone. 
That's glorification. That's in the future. But in the meantime, there needs to be a growth in holiness. If that church is going to be pure, if it's going to be healthy, it needs to be a holy church. And it has to be a, a holiness made uh, through our effort and by the power of the Spirit. It's a mysterious verse, isn't it? Romans 8, 13. If you, by the Spirit, put to death, that's kind of strange. It's a cooperative effort. If you do the putting to death, but you do it by the power of the Spirit. If the Spirit's not in it, you won't put it to death. But apparently you need to do something about it. And so there's the sense of, oh Lord, help me. Spirit, work in me. Give me strength as I face this temptation. I don't want to yield. You know, Give me the power of God to say no to sin. The grace of God, it says in Titus, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live upright and self-controlled lives in this present age. So that's what the Spirit is doing. That's what He's working in us. So if a church is pure, if it's going to be mature, that's going on essentially in the members. It doesn't have to be in every single solitary person because, you know, churches are dynamic. We, you know, we don't know what's going on in everybody that joins. We try to be sure that they're born again. <laughs> we try to be sure that they're believers. We certainly don't know everything that's going on in the people that attend on Sunday morning. We, we actually welcome unregenerate people coming to our services. We'd like them to be there. All right. But we're talking about is the leadership and the members, the essential spirit of the church. There's a, that drive for holiness. That's what we're discussing there. Okay. Personal holiness. 11. Care for the poor. Second Corinthians 8, 7. It says, just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. All right. What that means is a concern for the poor and needy, a concern for those that uh, uh, that uh, don't have enough. First, first with the with the uh, family of God, with Christians, we're concerned about that. The priority is given uh, to Christians in Galatians chapter six. It says, as you have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. So we need to take care of our own poor first. But secondly, you just see the benevolence of God as he just causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We're going to have opportunities to give to the needy right around us. And we do. You know, we have people coming all the time, every week, uh, that have needs, and we try to meet them. Uh, we have certain rules about it. Uh, we definitely, definitely want to share the gospel with them. You know, we definitely want to talk to them about their faith in Christ. That's the price of admission for getting benevolent care from our church, you know. And, and we just get that from John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The next day, they're looking for another meal. He said, I did not come down from heaven to be your personal chef. That's not why I'm here, okay? God will meet your need. He will, he will feed you, all right? Do not labor for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Get your eyes up off your stomach and go on to the eternal thing. Is your soul ready for judgment day? Do you know the Lord? That kind of thing. So we talk about those things, but we delight to give. And our church, our church has been blessed financially. Yes, sir. I've heard, I've heard the opposite a lot of times. I've heard you supposed to feed the first, and then because they aren't happy, they want it to be. They give the food, and then you'll, you'll, you'll satisfy the needs and just say, no. Yeah, I don't think there's any any absolute right or wrong there. You can feed them first and share the gospel next, or share it first. And Jesus taught them first. You know, if you look at it, you know, a very good example of this is in Mark's gospel, the feeding of the five thousand. This is really quite fascinating. Uh, you know, that you bring this up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. All right? And, and that's in the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark's gospel. Oh, see, you, you always bring me in interesting directions, brother. I never know what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah, then they'll be sleepy, actually, if you give them too much to eat. 
All right. Here, here's the thing. You know, it's amazing what you can listen to. You know, the, the real issue is that your stomach may be empty, but if your heart's hungry for God, you'll listen. And uh, so it's fascinating. Let me see if I can find it. I'm not, I'm not good at finding things in Mark's gospel. Um, but the feeding of the 5,000 um, in Mark. Thank you. Good for you. Praise God for you, dear sister in Christ, helping me out. Saving time. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Okay. Um, all right, 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 here it is. This is so beautiful. Um, in Mark 6, 30 and following, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to themselves, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So it's like a little bit of a retreat for the apostles. It's just, you know, the pace of ministry was getting a little harassing. They didn't even have a chance to, to eat or do anything. They were just, so he says, come away. You just need, you need some time. Well, the problem is they, they went away to, uh, by themselves to a solitary uh, place by boat, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them, okay? So, so much for that. But look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So, what? So what did he do? Did he feed them? No, he didn't feed them. He fed them the word of God. That's what he fed them. Look what it says. He says, um, when, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That's what he had to give. He taught them the word of God. Now, he had the ability to do more. And he did do more. He fed the 5,000 that day. But the next day, he didn't feed them. He didn't. He, he was ready to teach them again if they wanted to listen. That's the point. The priority is the teaching. It saves souls. God will feed you. I mean, you think about some, somebody who comes with a need. They're in their 30s or 40s. God has an amazing track record of filling their stomach. Just ask them, how many meals have you had since you were born? They probably can't calculate them. God actually feeds many people. Yes, there are some that die of starvation, and their cases are well known around the world. But it's an aberration. It's almost always because of direct human sin some civil war in the Sudan or something like that, people using food, uh, which is abundantly provided by the rest of the world, but they're using it as a weapon in the civil war kind of situation. It's malicious and wicked. God is abundantly providing enough food for human beings. That's not the problem. The problem is what's going on in your soul. And so Jesus has compassion and he, and he teaches them many things. Well, long story short, back to the issue of ministry to the poor, um, there are needs all the time. Jesus said the poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. And so if you're always turning, closing your heart to the poor, something's wrong. The church isn't pure if it has no ministry to the poor. And uh, it's all the more, if you, you know, as our church is, blessed abundantly financially. And we're going to have to give an account on the day of judgment for every dollar, for everything he's given. It's all his money, all of it. And so we need to think again. And, and a healthy church is challenging people to think what they're doing with their money. What are you investing in? What are you spending it on? You know, look at every dollar. Is it's all the Lord? So anyway, care for the poor, and then love for Christ. Yes, sir. Right. Well, I, I was just going to add that I, I'm, I'm kind of torn. There are a number of people, uh, men in particular, who panhandle on the corners mm -hmm. uh, here in Durham, um, over by Home Depot and right. over by South Point places and so forth. And uh, I have talked with the director of, of um, Durham Rescue Missions uh, mm -hmm. about these people and whether or not they've been offered 
you know, help at some of the, the uh, missions and other places. And I was surprised to find out that many of them don't want any kind of, of supervised uh, or regulated right. uh, regulations in their life, basically, is what they say. Right. Uh, I, I don't want your rule, I don't want what you have to offer and then have to live by your rules. That's right. People. So That's right. I guess the question I have, I, I still am torn whether or not to, uh, you know, how to minister to these people. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the principle is you can help them whenever you want. You're not you're not under obligation either way, you know, and and that's the way I look at it. You're not you're not breaking a law if you help them, you know. Some people say never help them, you know. If any man will not work, neither shall he eat. Well, that's not, I'm not in that position to say that he will not work. I don't know that he doesn't work. I don't even know him. He might have a certain you know issue or whatever. Well, I had a conversation with one of the guys. Yeah. And, and I gave him money. Yeah. And uh, you know he was evoking the name of God and so forth. And, and uh, he said he had bad knees and couldn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, that was early one morning. Yeah. Later on that afternoon, I saw the same guy on, on, the, on that corner and realized that he had basically lied to me about his mm-hmm. condition. But you see, a guy like that, he's going to be hungrier than you or me because he's basically b- breaking society's rules. Society has certain rules. If you want to hold down a job, you've got to kind of obey somebody. <laughs> I mean, you got you got to do what you're told, and you know from school and right on through, and you get a job, and you you got to be a man under authority. Well, soldiers under you. Go ahead. What are you gonna say? Yes, you do. Well, that's what I tell my kids. I said, how are you gonna hold down a job if you don't obey your parents? You're not. You have a hard time holding down a job because the boss is gonna tell you to do something. You won't do it well. Well, I think it's your thing. Sometimes you do things like that, people. You are an enabler. Yeah, that's true. And you have to be careful about giving money. Right. We can. You're free to do it if you want to. And it's not wrong to give them money, but it's sometimes unwise because sometimes they have drug habits or alcohol problems and you're just giving them immediately things that they're going to use for drugs and alcohol. So for me, the more costly thing is always time. Somebody comes up and, and they have a need and it's like, you know, if we do it right, we're talking an hour and a half or something like that. And that's when it gets tough. They, they yeah, they don't want the hour and a half either. I can tell you right now. <laughs> they don't and I don't. But, you know, the Lord may want it. And, and so we try. But uh, one, one thing I've, I've resisted is having a set pattern so that definitely this is it and then it becomes dehumanized. You know what I'm saying? I want to stay sensitive to the spirit and so I might actually give money sometimes even though I suspect they might use it for drugs or alcohol because there's nothing else I can do at that moment and yet I want to help them. And so and there are other times that I don't do it. In India, there were tons of beggars. They'd come right up to the little um, motorized um, uh, rickshaws that they have. You know how they used to have the man-powered rickshaws? Now they have motorcycle rickshaws and so, I mean, they, they come to a stop, stop, and they'd immediately just come flooding up, you know, and they, would, they wanted money, you know. But it's like a mafia thing. It's syndicated over there. And, and one, of them, one of them really bothered me was a woman with a little baby. All right, I have five children. I know something about kids. And this baby, we're, we're uh, coming up, and suddenly the baby erupts crying out of nowhere. This is, this is a baby younger than a year old. There's no doubt in my mind that baby was in pain. There's no doubt in my mind. I know I've got five children. She pinched it, you know, because the crying baby creates more sympathy. It didn't create any sympathy in me. It actually did the opposite. You know, I was like, my goodness. I mean, it took me for a fool.
Well, I mean, how, why does the baby suddenly cry? I mean, she jabbed him or poked him or pinched him or something like that. But yet there are genuinely needy people over there. I never feel totally at ease and comfortable with it. And frankly, I don't think the Lord wants us to. I don't think you're ever supposed to get to a point where you got the whole thing figured out on ministry to the poor. I think the point is it's supposed to continue to be an issue for you. Jesus continues to say, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And it's like, whoa, I don't have anything. And then we pray and we see what God can do. So we're never supposed to get settled in where we say, well, we're not doing urban ministry. We're not doing ministry of the poor. They don't want to work anyway. I don't think he wants us to get to that place. That's too easy and convenient for us. Jack, go ahead. Well, I just want to say, you know, I think I, I would rather, you know, when it gets down to the point, I'd rather, I'd rather feed it with benevolence here. I'd rather give it to earn meals at rescue mission. Sure. I mean, you know, this, these people, a lot of these people, when you help these people, you're just enabling them to continue it's true. the way they're going. And if they get hungry, they want to go to the to the rescue mission and get a meal. Yeah. If they're standing out there and they're stone broke and they're hungry, yeah. they want to go there. They know where this place is. They it's know. amazing what hunger will do. It'll humble you, you know, at that point. Yeah. You know where this place is That's up true. on uh, Main Street. Uh, yeah. these, uh, I, excuse me for not remembering the senior moment. But anyway, where they feed people up there every day. Yeah. Just, just the shelter. Hundreds of meals. I mean, you know, yeah. these people know where these places are. They do. I'm not fussing against them or anything. You know, I'm just saying... Well, I agree. I just wouldn't make a hard and fast rule, Jack. That's all. And, and you're free to do it. You're free to help Ernie Mills. And I praise God for his ministry and we ought to help him. I just am resisting getting getting settled in and comfortable based on a formula so that you say, well, I never need to help this guy or whatever. I just want to say sensitive, stay sensitive to the spirit and to his leading. But I appreciate rather those people that are setting up ministries that help somebody who really wants to change their life. They're trapped into a certain pattern, but they want to get out. I think those are great ministries. So at any rate, I remember when I was in Pakistan back in 1987, the beggars were coming. It was the first time I really dealt with a lot of beggars. And it was really uh, tough for me. And I wanted to help them. But they're always pointing to their stomach, you know, like that. So what I did was I, I would go buy hot, fresh naan, which is flat bread, like Syrian bread, that kind of thing. It's really good. I loved it. It was steaming hot, fresh, and all that. I buy 10 loaves. They just stack up like quarters, you know, and I had them in a bag. And so they come up and point to their stomach, and I'd pull out a, a, a loaf to hand it to them. And there were two categories of people at that point. One would turn away in anger or knock the thing to the ground and be frustrated or whatever because they wanted money and nothing but money, even though they're pointing to their stomach. And then there were the second category. They'd take it out of your hand and eat it right in front of you. Yeah, I've run into that. I've offered to buy somebody who said they were hungry a meal. Yeah. And they were surprised that I would would want to do that. And then they'd turn away and walk away. Yeah. You know they wanted money. That's true. But the danger of that category is then you think there are no genuinely needy people. And that's not true. There are genuinely needy people. And so it was the second category that bothered me the most. The ones that ate the, ate the bread right on the spot or tore it in half and gave it to their child. You know, those are the ones that tell you there are genuinely needy people. Like Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. A lot of it comes from the breakdown of the family. You know, if there's no father there or whatever, there's, here's a woman, three or four kids, and, and she's got to try to make ends meet. It's really, really tough. That's just a formula for poverty at that point. The church has to be careful what it commits to, though. You know, um, it's one thing to just give to somebody who comes to the door. It's another thing to be responsible for their ongoing monthly support. You know what I'm saying? Rent and heat and all those kind of things. Look, that's too big for the church. And that's why in 1 Timothy 5, there's a list of widows that are genuinely widows in need and they have no family. And then the church kind of adopts them and cares for them. It's really pretty meticulous 
who the church is going to commit itself to at that point. And you have to be like over 60 and you have to be a genuinely pious, godly woman and all that. You know what I'm talking about? That whole thing in 1 Timothy 5. And he really lays it on the family member saying, if anyone doesn't provide for his own family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's very harsh language. He's like, don't bring them to the church. That's not what we're here for. The family is there to take care of them. That's what, the, that's what it's, you know, it's there for. So at any rate, now we could go on and on about ministry to the poor. All I'm saying is that this church, if it's going to be a pure church and a healthy church, needs to continue to have a soft heart toward the poor and needy. And we need to continue to be um, open to ministry to them. And we are, and, but need to be more and more, I think. And then, uh, obviously, love for Christ. First uh, Peter 1.8, a pure church, a healthy church, will have a deep love for Christ, an affection for the Savior. We love him. First, Tim, uh, First Peter 1.8 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy as you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's Jesus. He paid the price. When do we ever get tired of talking about Jesus? Jesus should be the focus of our conversation. We should be delighted to talk about his glory. I, I preached at uh, Southeastern Chapel today and I uh, was talking about his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I just stopped and I broke, broke it into seven subsections. I, I said, um, why is Jesus' yoke easy and his burden light? Seven reasons. You know, because of his finished work on the cross, because he's already done your heavy lifting for you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, because of his, his winsome character. He is gentle and humble in heart. You know, whatever. I went on these seven things. That was a pleasure to me. I love to talk about Jesus to talk about why, why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because he actually gets inside you by his spirit and helps you lift whatever he lays on you. So he lays a burden on you and then he helps you to lift it. I mean, it's just, that's the way Jesus is. We can't get enough of talking about him. And when you come into this church, you, have, you should have a sense of an overwhelming affection for Christ. You know, there shouldn't be a whole Sunday morning goes through and we don't even talk about Christ. Even if I'm preaching the Old Testament, there needs to be a focus on Christ and a love for him. Those are 12 aspects of a healthy church, a pure church. No, no church is strong in all 12 areas. Not, and no church is ever where it should be fully in those areas. But these are things we need to look at. And uh, we desire to grow in. Any questions about these 12 aspects of a healthy church or a pure church? Okay. Well, they're, they're attractive to me. I'd like to see a church like that. I'd like to be part of it. Uh, it's gratifying for me to see that our church developing in some of these areas. I'd like to see it more and more. But that's a delight to me. All right, well, let's, let's make some observations about churches. First of all, churches can be more pure in some areas and less pure in others. You'll get a list of 12 things. You can have some churches that are strong in some things and then some areas that they're weaker. Um, that's true of individual Christians too, isn't it? You know, I mean, you can have some areas where I'm really good at this and not so good at that. That, that can be the way it is. No church has perfect purity and balance, but all churches should strive for it constantly. Um, Ephesians 5, uh, Jesus wants his church to be without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So, for example, some churches may be strong in witnessing and vibrant worship, but weak doctrinally or in preaching. Actually, that's common. You know, you have the soul-winning church, the seeker-sensitive church, the church that's very strong at bringing people to uh, a personal commitment to Christ. They're able to reach into places where people are not Christians and, and get them interested in Christ and interested in spiritual things. They seem to be good at that. But, but taking them on from there is not a strength for that church. That can be difficult for them. And they, they try to find ways. They have midweek training things and discipleship programs. But the over, overarching feel of the church is that of a soul-winning church. And uh, so it's hard for that church to be as good at building people up doctrinally. Uh, that can be a problem. Uh, the flip side can be, can be true as well. 
You can have some churches that are really strong in the doctrine and working and all that, but they're just weak on the soul winning, uh, etc., weak on evangelism. Doctrinal purity is vital because it precedes life purity. Therefore, the New Testament speaks much of fighting for true doctrine. In Jude 3, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Fight for it. That's the body of doctrines known as Christianity. The faith, okay? That's what it is. Keep the faith. You know, I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith, that kind of thing. What I mean is it's Christianity. It's the doctrine of Christianity. We have to fight for it because it, it primes the pump for everything. Good, solid teaching in every other area. All right. Working for purity in the local church. Christians should work for the purity of their own church. You should care that this church becomes a more pure church. That should matter to you. You should be praying for it. You should be praying for this church to become more faithful in those 12 areas and others besides. I I don't think that those 12 is a comprehensive list of everything a church could be. But it's a good list. You go over that and you say, Lord, help us to be more faithful in this and more faithful in that. Help us to be stronger in the other. You know, pray for it. But you should care that this church becomes more and more pure without stain or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, but holy and blameless. That should matter to you. You should be concerned about it. And not just this local church, but the church around the world. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, so it is with you since you're eager to have spiritual gifts then try to excel in those gifts that build up the church. That's what he's asking for, that, that your gifts would build up the church in spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4.16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself self up in love as each part does its work. So each of us has a work to do in the building up of the church to full maturity. That's what we should be carrying. You should be working for this church um, to build it up into maturity. Christians are not obligated to seek the purest church they can find and stay there, Okay. I mean, that would be a lifetime search anyway, right? I mean, you stay there until something offends you and leave, all right? <laughs> First of all, you have children developing and watching you do that, all right? Time is precious. There's just a practicality to that, right? And, and you know, it's like, oh, I had to leave that. Why? Because of this. Had to leave that because of this, whatever. I mean, the quest for the perfect church, the quest for the pure church, I would not advise it. I would instead say, okay, is the Bible being faithfully taught and preached? Are these other things basically in place? Then commit to that church. Like uh, Joshua Harris wrote a book called Stop Dating the Church. Come on, when are you going to get to the altar? Let's make a commitment, all right? You know, uh, there's no perfect church like there's no perfect spouse, all right? So the thing is, is the church a faithful church and already growing in purity? Then stay there, be committed, and help it grow even more. That's the idea. But you can see the opposite, what a bad way to live it is. It's like, I had to leave. I found some flaws in the church. Well, first of all, what about you? <laughs> Have you not found any flaws in yourself? Maybe you were the flaw in the church, you know? It, it really is amazing when you hear about churches that are unfriendly and nobody reaches out, you know? I, I don't know how to get at those folks and say, were you friendly? Did you reach out? You know, I, I find that the people who who are active and reaching out and seeking to bless whenever, they're not saying that the church is unfriendly and nobody reaches out. It's the ones that are saying, what can you do for me? That's when you start having, having problems. And so the thing is, you, it's not a search for the perfect church and then settle in there and there it is. Okay, there is none. You'll, you'll never find one. So in, in times of the essence, we're getting older. Our kids are growing up. We, you know, we don't have time for that. We need to find a church where the word of God is being preached, where there's other godly people, where there's a heart for missions and evangelism and just be there. It's a good church, all right? And then try to help it to be uh, faithful. Tell me. Yes. Teachers, yeah. Uh, rise up and start preaching false doctrines and 
Absolutely. I think we're going to get get there. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get there. And, and at that point, yeah, you may need to run. You may need to fight because it just said in Jude 3, I just quoted, you have to earnestly t- contend for the faith that was entrusted. Sometimes you don't run, you stand and fight. Fight for your church. You know, and there, there are times like that. I think this church went through a tough time and all that. So, yeah, you have to decide. Now, for me as a senior pastor, I have a greater Im- influence and impact. All right, when I looked and I saw that this church had some issues and all that, um, I realized I could have a great impact by staying and preaching, all right, over a long period of time. If you're a church member, it's harder, okay, because you don't have as much influence. And, and so you have to decide, is it really possible here? Can this church really become a healthy and strong church? That's a judgment call, and it's not always easy. Sometimes you have to make, make a decision about that. But, Fred, that's a very good point. You know, if, uh, there are some churches that you really can't stay to save. As a matter of fact, I've been involved in, an, in a kind of an evangelical ecumenical group of pastors uh, from a lot of different denominations. And it's really fascinating to get to know the evangelical Episcopalians who are part of, part of a terrible denomination these days that are ordaining homosexuals and women and all kinds of things. And they're just accelerating away from the word of God. And here are these brothers that love the Lord. They love his word, every bit as much as we do. And they're like, do we stay? What do we do? You know, and it's tough because they own the property. You know, the, the Episcopal, the top-down structure, they own the property. They're in charge. They put the pastor in. You've got to accept it, like it or lump it. doesn't matter. They're in charge. And so they have to decide, are they going to break off, start a schismatic group and all that? It's tough for them. So that's a very good point. And there's a lot of history about that in the 20th century. The, the whole Presbyterian and Presbyterian controversy, they broke into two different denominations that we still have today, the PCA and the PCUSA, two different Presbyterian churches. And that was over doctrinal issues, absolutely. Anyway, comments on liberal Christianity. Funny you should mention that, Fred. I knew we were going there, but uh, yeah. All right. Some churches consistently resist the efforts of their strongest members in moving them toward more purity or maturity, right? If the local church power structure is resisting and cannot be overcome, that church will head toward becoming a cult or a dead or a liberal church. And what can you do? You run. Yeah, find another church. You know, you got to go. I mean, again, for the same reason I said earlier that you shouldn't be church hopping and all that. It's because time was of the essence. And if all you're hearing is garbage from the pulpit week after week and, the, and there's the dead and there's nothing going on, you don't have time for that. You know, you need to be in a church that's helping you grow and, and where you can use your gifts and all that. And a liberal church isn't it at all. So liberalism is primarily man-centered rather than God-centered. Therefore, a move toward liberalism is a move toward man-centeredness in every area of ministry. That's what it is. It's preaching, teaching, counseling, evangelism, if there is any. ha. Ah. I've never met in a liberal church that evangelized. They just don't. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, even casual conversations among members will tend toward uh, more and more toward man-centeredness. Self-help approaches and pragmatism will reign more and more of a horizontal or manward than a vertical or Godward direction. More and more discussion on being caring, loving people and helping others in need and less and less discussion on what the Bible teaches. Hey, listen, being caring, loving people and helping others in need is important. We've actually spent about 20 minutes talking about it here tonight. But we do it because we love God, because people are creating the image of God, because Jesus did it. There's a whole different motivation structure. All right. These folks do it. I don't know why they do it. You know, I don't know why atheistic people really want to help other people. It could just be that echo of the image of God that's in all of us. I don't really know. But uh, just listen to National Public Radio. There's a passion for helping people. All right. It's really interesting. Uh, I don't know what their motivation is. I don't know why. Maybe it makes them feel good. I don't really know. But there's a, there's a horizontal man-centeredness there in the liberal church. Um, 
to me, I want to be God-saturated. I, I, want, I want to know more about this infinite being that created heaven and earth, don't you? I mean, what, what a mystery he is. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, it says. I want to plumb those depths. I want to have my mind and my soul stretched by that. I want to spend eternity getting to know Jesus, don't you? I don't want to be, you know, horizontal all the time. I want to be first vertical and then horizontal. I want to be focused on God and then look around at these people, these marvelous creations that God made. And people are marvelous. They're complex and they're wonderful and, and amazing, but because they're created in the image of God. That's why. All right. New Testament teaching on the unity of the church. Uh, yeah, one final comment. The faster this goes, the more the church is moving toward being a false church. Fred, it's time to leave. All right. See, I mean, we made that distinction, remember, between a true and false church and between a more pure and less pure. We were talking this whole time more pure, less pure. Now we've kind of you know, gone back into the idea of something that's not even really a church. And that's what you have to be careful about. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go through all these verses on unity. There's a ton of verses on unity. It's obviously very important. Uh, the church needs to be one. There's one thing in particular, a passage I want to focus on. That's right there in the middle. John 17, 20 through 23. Do you see it? Now, this is really important. Okay? My prayer, this is Jesus' so-called high priestly prayer the night before he was crucified, a marvelous prayer, the greatest prayer, in my opinion, in the Bible, is Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's incredible. But Jesus prays for this issue of unity. You know, he mentioned it in verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So there's the measure of unity in a local church. What is it? What's the measurement of unity that Jesus uses, the standard of unity? The oneness between the Father and the Son. And we could extend it to the Trinity. Trinitarian unity. That's the unity we're talking about. That's the real deal. That's not pretending you like someone. That's not acting like your brothers. That's actually being one as the Father and the Son are one. That's the standard. And you know what? That's what we're going to get in heaven. There's not going to be any disunity in heaven. Any elements of disunity is gone. And that's, that's fantastic. That's heavenly. Perfect unity. But look what it says here in, in verses 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. <laughs> Father, just as you were in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow, boy, is there a lot in there. Now, here's the deal. You've got the idea of absolute perfect unity. The more you talk about, it, the more you realize it's impossible here in this world. We're too sinful. We're too selfish. We have tendencies and problems inside ourselves. So we're not going to be perfectly one in this world, right? In heaven, we will be when, when we're glorified, when we're changed, when we're transformed. We will be one as the Father and the Son are one. But clearly, Jesus has an earthly focus here, doesn't he? To let the world know that you sent me. So there's an unbelieving world observing a process going on. Do you see? The world is watching the process of the church moving from disunity to unity. And as the church, as the world, sorry, watches the church become more and more one, then they're impressed by the power of the gospel. You see what I'm saying? Because we're talking about a genuine unity. You talk about, um, you know, racism, 
you know, black-white issues. You talk about, you know, multicultural issues, United Nations and all that. They'll never get it. They could talk till doomsday. They will never be perfectly one as the Father and the Son are one. There's only one force in the universe for genuine unity between disunited people. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as that process gets observed by unbelievers, you talk about like in Rwanda, remember how there were the Hutus and Tutsis and they were slaughtering each other, hating each other? Well, what would it be like to have a church mingled between those two tribes of Christians? You know what I'm saying? Loving each other, forgiving each other. You see, what a testimony of the power of God, right? Or what about the Jews and the Palestinians? They don't seem to like each other. All right. What if you had a church of of Messianic Jews and of Palestinian Christians together fellowshipping? See what I'm saying? And so Jesus says there's an observing, watching world. Let them or may they be brought to complete unity. So Jesus isn't going to lower the standards. He's not going to say, tell you what, let's let's have them be brought toward a low, lower grade provisional unity. Okay, he doesn't say that. He's talking heavenly. Let's, let's bring them up to a perfect unity to let the world know. So we're shooting. We're aiming for perfect unity. We're not going to get it in this world, will we? That's not going to happen. But that's what we're, what we're aiming for. Aim for perfection, it says in, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So we're aiming for that. And as it goes on, we're not going to accept racism. We're not going to accept multicultural divisions. The homogeneous unit principle. And that's a mission principle that says that People like to worship with people like themselves. Have you heard that one? Now, what are the implications of that? People like to worship with people like themselves. What does that end up looking like on Sunday morning? Well, everybody looks like you. They're all about your age. They're all about your economic level. They're your same skin color. They're your same cultural background, right? Is that going on? Yes. It's just kind of natural. You know what I'm saying? And so my feeling is, okay, you know, there's a corollary to the homogeneous unit principle. And that is, all right, let me restate the principle. People like to worship with people like themselves. Yes, but they ought not to. All right, that's the, that's the corollary. In other words, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis should actually learn how to worship together to let the world know that God sent Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Now, here in our in our culture, we have we have, you know, the black-white issue, but we have we have a good church right up the street, Union Baptist Church. I drive by those good people every Sunday, wave at them, chat at them as they walk across the crosswalk and all that, two different churches. I would love to go worship there. I think it would be a fascinating experience for me, except I'm busy on Sunday mornings, all right? But I think that would be exciting, don't you think? You know? What's that? Excuses, excuses. Tell you what, you want me to go there? Where's the pastor? I mean, it's like 11.30, and I thought he was going to preach. I'm up at Union Baptist Church, worshiping with my brothers and sisters up there. Well, I need to arrange it at least, brother, okay? You give me that at much, and I'll have Scott Markley preach for me. But here's the thing. One of the greatest evidences to me of the truth of of the gospel is how it unites people who otherwise would never be united. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power to solve the black-white issue, the Hutu and the Tutsi problem or whatever. It's the only thing that can do it. But sin is strong, isn't it? Tendencies are strong. We feel comfortable with people like ourselves. We don't want to face difficult things. For me, I would love to see this church become more and more united. And, and it's already happening because we've got a lot of internationals that are coming, Chinese folks, people from Africa worshiping here. I just would like to see it more and more because it just, to me, it's evidence of the truth of the gospel. You know what I'm saying? I love to see that. 
I love to see it, and I'd like to see it happen more and more. Any other comments on this issue of unity and growing and all that? What, what do you mean by the other sheep? Is there a true disappointment? The first verse, I have other sheep. Oh, other sheep? I have other sheep? Where does it say that? Oh, 10.16, John 10.16? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a science fiction Christian kind of person, okay? You, you know what? If you look at the re- book of Revelation, everything changes in the universe when events come to a head on earth. You know what I'm saying? So Copernicus was right that the kind of earth revolves around the sun, but the medieval view that of the centrality of the earth is accurate theologically because when things come to a head here on earth and stars fall and the new heavens and new earth comes and all that. So it, and it says in Genesis 1 that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to give light to the earth. That's why they're there. So how would you like to be orbiting some distant star and find out that your whole purpose has got to do with some planet way here on the other side and you didn't even know it? And now your history's coming to an end even though uh, you still had a ways to go because everything's finishing here on earth. I don't think there are people in the distant deep reaches of space. I don't think they exist. I think those are stars out there that are giving light to the earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be a whole new situation. I think we're all there is, guys. We and the angels and demons. And so, you know, I, th- I think it's all, I, I, I just think that's what it means when it says that they give light to the earth. So, no, the other sheep are human beings. Okay? You guys accept that interpretation? I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. They are human beings. I think the general interpretation is that they are Gentiles. You know, the sheep pen there are the Jews. And Jesus is going to reach out to the Gentiles. He's going to go bring them in. And there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. That's unity, right? That's my take on that. I don't know. All right. Let's move on. See if there's anything else here. Nah, not really. (laughs) Oh, yes, there is. Oh, I'm sorry. All right, let's keep going. I really want to get to the church government sheep. We're going to have to wait. Next week is a church conference, so we're not doing this uh, next week. It'll just be a regular church conference. 6.30, I think. So, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to be in Virginia at a speaking engagement that I committed to before we changed our church conference schedule. So, um, at any rate, made that commitment. But still, please be at the church conference. Do as I say, not as I do. That's a bad example, isn't it? Parenting that, you know, the do as I say, not as I do parenting generally doesn't work. But please be here even though I won't, okay? Because those church conferences are important. All right, let's keep going. Um, Commanded unity based on actual unity, simultaneously working for both unity and purity. All right, here's the deal. I've already explained this in Romans 14 and 15. Unity and purity seem like two different things, right? You know, you say unity. We, the way you get unity is like the Amish. We all believe exactly the same thing and keep people out who don't believe it. Like we homeschool, right? And homeschooling, that's a tendency in the homeschool community is to become ever increasingly separated. And, and you've got to fight that because in some, in some ways it's important. But in other ways... Um, You've got to keep Romans 14 and 15 together where we care about people who aren't where we're at. You know what I'm saying? And we stay together in the local church. Because other than that, you just get this fragmenting all the time based on issues, you know? Uh, Whether it's meat sacrifice to idols or what you do on a Sabbath day or all that, it just tends to break apart because the people just can't agree. And so you have the whole new first church of fresh holiness, you know, that starts, you know, and, and it's just sad that's gone on since the Reformation. You know, it, it just keeps breaking into smaller and smaller fragmented groups. That is a direct violation of Romans 14 and 15. Instead, what we ought to be doing is maintaining unity 
as best we can stay together and iron sharpens iron, let's agree. Let's get the Bible open and find out who's right. Probably we're both wrong at some point. I need to hear from you. You need to hear from me. Let's help each other. Share what we each know. Sharpen each other. And then we each come to a different place than where we started. That's what God, I think, intended. That's the process of being brought to complete unity. What ends up happening is people are like, well, I'm right. You're wrong. I don't know why you can't see it. It's right here in this verse. What's the matter with you? You know, and it's like, well, I don't see it. You know, we've got these other verses. And they just agree to disagree and they actually agree to do church different places. And that's what must not happen. Instead, we have to come together and there has to be a unity. But what happens the other way is, let's not talk about it. All right? We disagree. Let's not talk about it. And so there's just hush-hush and everybody knows where everybody stands. Nobody's talking about it and all that. Well, no iron sharpening iron then. There's no, there's no development. People aren't being challenged in their thinking, you know? So instead, what we have to do is a, a commitment to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other. We believe in each other. We're trusting each other. All right? But we need to grow. And so let's talk about it. And so therefore, you have to follow the rules. All right? Uh, I'll give you an example. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. It's a very good example of how to do it. You want to know how to do it. How do I do it? You know, uh, and, and there are issues. I, I remember um, in uh, one of the Sunday school departments, they had, they had a rather difficult uh, discussion about birth control. There's just different views on it. My feeling is, all right, those discussions need to go on, but they have to go on in a certain way. There's a certain demeanor and, a, you know, uh, uh, an approach to handling difficult issues, all right? But look at 2 Timothy 2, and, and Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy how to do it. And uh, I just love this. Um, verses 22 uh, through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26. And there it says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hopes that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. That's how you do it. What, what principles do you get out of that on how to help a brother or sister grow up a little bit in an area? What, what do you get out of that? What does he say to do? Gently instruct as opposed to what? Like Bible. I've seen that done. It's not good, Okay. Get one of those like coffee table Bibles, like the one that was handed down from your great grandma. Man, concussion, all right? Definitely brain damage on that one. No, gently instruct, all right? What else, what, what other ideas do you get out of this? Huh? Patience. Patience, why is that needed? Oh, it doesn't happen overnight. It's gonna take time, right? It's like, can I give you something to think about? Tell you what, just let me give you this verse. Let me ask you, ask you to pray about this verse for a week, and let's talk again a week from now. Let God work. Let him have a chance to work in a person's heart. You didn't come to your convictions overnight. Give him a chance. What else do you get? An example? Be a good example. Set an example. All right? Carry yourself well. What else? Foolish and stupid arguments. You know what's interesting is how this whole thing begins. Flee the evil desires of youth. You know, when you think of the evil desires of youth, frequently it's in the sexual area. People think about lust, 
all right? And, and it is an evil desire of youth. But here it's a different evil desire of youth. What is it? Contentiousness, arguments, right? It's an ego thing, right? You want to win, right? And I can win this argument. Bring the brother on, right? It's like a chess match or something like that. That's a whole wrong attitude. That, that is, and it just have nothing to do with that whole approach, all right? So something there. Any, any other thoughts that you get out of this? Don't quarrel. So if you're, if you're already in something where you're like playing tennis with somebody back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, stop. <laughs> okay. it's, it's already an argument. It's already a quarreling. Don't do that. Don't do that. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Kind, he should be able to teach. Now that's something that we're going to focus on. What does that mean, able to teach? Able to teach. Teach what? He needs to know the word of God. Okay, because if he doesn't know the word of God, he's just as bad. I mean, he's worse off. I mean, it's the word that's going to solve the problem. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's the word that can solve the problem? Because we're thinking different thoughts. There's only one power that can transform a mind and bring it to be like God's mind. We have the mind of Christ. And it says in, in, in 1 John, I, me- I mentioned this last week and from the pulpit on Sunday as well, we have an anointing from the Holy One and we know the truth. And so the thing is you've got to unleash the word, but there's a skill to doing it. You have to be able to teach. And so therefore there's a gentleness, a sweet demeanor. There's a sense in which, you know, this isn't going to sink us. We're brothers together. We're still, you know, someday, someday we will both agree on this. All right? It's not going to kill us, all right? But I do think it's worth talking about. Let's keep working on it. There's a sweetness there. There's a demeanor. There's a peace. The relationship's not, not in danger. It's not like I'm going to take my ball and go home. If you don't get this thing figured out in the next six weeks, I'm out of here. We're going to a different church. We're starting our own denomination, all right? No, that's, that's not even on the table. That's schismatic. We're not going to do that. We're going to stick together with each other. We're committed to each other, but we're also going to talk about it. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to talk about it. What else? In the hope that God will grant them what? Repentance. Okay? Now, (laughs) I wouldn't advise, I want you to know I'm praying for you, that God will grant you repentance, leading you to a knowledge of the truth, and that you'll come to your senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken you captive to do his will. I wouldn't advise that, okay? That's not a good approach, okay? That's not gentle. It's going to create a rise in the individual, all right? They're going to come back at you. Well, I actually think you're taken captive by the devil and you're doing his will, you know? No, I'm not. I can prove it to you. And back and forth you go. Well, actually, at that moment, you're both taken captive by the devil to do his will. What a tragic thing it is to be taken captive as a child of God and do the devil's will, you know? Whenever we act like the accuser of the brethren, we're doing the devil's work. You can do it even in your own marriage. I've actually been in a conflict with my wife and I have felt expressions and phrases that I pause and say, wait a minute, I don't believe that. I don't think it. Where in the world did that come from? I know where it came from. Satan was handing it to me. He had sharpened it and he said, here, throw this at her. And and it's like sometimes you can just like, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want to say that. I don't even believe it. It's a demonic thing. It's evil. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I do not want to be taken captive to do the devil's will right now in my marriage or in my relationship with my brother in Christ. But sometimes people can do that. We, can be, we, we don't even know we're doing it. So instead, I think there is this gentleness, there's this patience, there's this love, and we're waiting on God to change hearts. But we are teaching. We are out there making the case. Second, Second Timothy 2. Yeah. I think we've got to keep in mind the flip side of that, that there's a level of humility that we might be the ones that need to have that open mind and oh, yeah. talk. That's right. It's, it's the opposite. 
Yeah, and I actually, I come into it expecting that, frankly. You know, I really do. I, I come into a, a situation saying, Lord, because actually it's almost a, a selfish or greedy thing on my part. I want to grow. You know, I want to grow. I believe that my doctrine is incomplete. I believe there are things that are wrong with me. At least this much is true. I know that my life is. And so I'm, I'm coming in saying, Lord, give me what I need here. I, I, there's something that I need to grow in. I actually think it's very much a mutuality. Iron sharpening iron means both are receiving some benefits here. And so uh, I, I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. So, yeah, Lord, show me. So there's a humility there that's genuine. The, the stance here is appropriate that, that Timothy is godly and he's helping somebody who's straying. And so they are the one taken captive and all that. That's okay. But what I'm saying is, even so, there needs to be that humility and sense, you know, show me, show me what I'm doing wrong, what I'm thinking wrong. You know, anyway, um, I, to me, this is the right approach. We need to be committed to both unity and purity. Not just unity, not just purity. If you're committed to just purity, you'll be schismatic and you'll start your own denomination. If you're committed to just unity, you'll lurch off into false doctrine, liberalism and all that kind of thing. You've got to be committed to both. And, gen- and if you really love the brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll be committed to both. Because you're not doing them any favors to leave them thinking wrong th- thoughts doctrinally or, wrong- or, or living wrongly. That's not helping them either. We need to be in there together. Any other thoughts? Uh, we're out of time. Anything else? I give you a brief history on separation of the church. You know, for a long time there was none, but since the Reformation, talked about you want a history of schismatics, all right? Since the Reformation, just trace it out. Did you ever hear that joke about uh, it was like Robin, Robinson Crusoe guy? You know, and it's like three straw huts. Have you heard this one? I've heard this one. This is a funny joke. Close with this one. Anyway. You know, he finally gets 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 uh, rescued, and it's like, well, I want to take you on a tour of the island. Well, here's this. What's this? This is my home. This is where I live. Uh, what's this one? Well, that's my house of worship. That's where I worship. Well, what's this third one? Well, that's where I used to worship. All right. Okay. So, anyway, that's bad. I mean, we don't want to be schismatic. You know, starting our own church. All the yeah. Go ahead. There are about twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. Half of them are. Now, my question here is, are there 20,000 doctrines? I don't even think there's 20,000 doctrines. Some of them can get together, don't you think? I mean, we've got to organize some of these. Let's say, I just want you to know that you and five other denominations believe the exact same thing. You should get together. Start a national denomination. I know, they've got to find out who's going to lead it. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had tonight uh, to study uh, the issue of unity and purity in the church. And God, I pray that you would work in us what is pleasing to you, that we would become more and more one and more and more pure. We know that both unity and purity in the perfect sense are waiting for um, the eternal state when we will be perfectly pure and perfectly one. In the meantime, though, it's obvious from John 17 how important is the process to evangelization. Lord, I pray that we would be working all the time on both purity and unity to let the world know that you sent your son into the world as the savior of the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.